Welcome to the Tales from Travellers podcast, a show that aims to share the unique experiences of expats, travellers, and those who have chosen to make a life abroad. Through our guests' unique experiences, we will explore the challenges and rewards of adjusting to a new culture, making connections, pursuing a career, or even raising a family in a different part of the world. Whether you're a seasoned traveller or new to the expat lifestyle, this podcast could be an insightful tool or just a fun distraction if you're thinking about taking the leap and moving abroad. Today my guest is Aaron, one of the fellow expats and travellers that went out to Wenzhou to teach in a very rural and lovely area. We are now several years later, I forget the exact number, I'm going to say five. Let's go with that, maybe six. And so, first questions first, Aaron. Whereabouts are you in the world right now? Currently, I'm in Derby in the UK. A little bit further out from uh, China. and But obviously, you and I went out there together. We became TEFL teachers, as a lot of uh, English expats do when they move to China. Mm-hmm. So I suppose the the real question that boils down to it, that why everyone went out there, what inspired you to go and work as a TEFL teacher in China? I think it was... I just had no direction at the time. So I finished uni, I think, exactly a year before we flew out to China. And when I was still studying at uni and I was applying for jobs, I had someone call me and ask me on the phone, when you graduate, would you be interested in going out to China and teaching? And immediately I said, no. And they said, we'll send you an email. And if you're ever interested, get in contact. So. I finished uni and I was applying for jobs and I got a job in a call center. After about six months, I was just hating life. I really hated it. And then another company called me just randomly out of the blue and said, hi, we've seen your CV. Would you be interested in going out to China and teaching? You know what? This time, let's say yes and see where it goes. So I said yes. And I did the interview and it went well and I got offered the job. And then I did some research on the school and the company just didn't look legit. So I said, I'll can it. Sift through my email again and found that old person that contacted me. And that was teachtefelinchina.com. So I contacted those guys again and said, hi, I'm actually kind of interested now. What have you got on offer? So they went through with me the whole thing. And even then I wasn't convinced. I was like, you know what? I've got this job offer now. Let's go to my job now and tell them that I might move to China unless they can give me a promotion, which they kept promising, but they were never coming with it. So I went for that. They said they'd promote me. And it was about three weeks later and nothing had been done. So I just rage um, called the people on the phone, the TEFL people and said, I'll accept the job. And that's kind of my story of how I went to China I was just angry with my old job I think a lot of us who went out there we all had a kind of similar story we we're kind of in a state of limbo a bit directionless not knowing what to do and it everyone kind of got everyone seemed to get just this random phone call I couldn't even tell you where they probably found my CV but um did you did you think that teaching would be something that you could fall into or was the allure for traveling more exciting than the idea of teaching honestly I hadn't thought about either um, I think it was just how strange it sounded was more the appeal to me. I just wanted to be out of my comfort zone for a bit and see what was available. So, yeah, 
I never thought I'd be a teacher and I never thought I'd live abroad. So it was just two challenges that had come up to me. What did you study at university? Was there any correlation between the two? No, I did um, business management and marketing. We all did very different, very different courses, very different degrees. I don't think anyone really had a a course that would lead into teaching. I mean, my, my degree was in film production, so it was probably as far away from teaching in front of students as one could be. But um, were you much of a... Did you go on many trips and holidays beforehand? Obviously, you mentioned travel wasn't really kind of on your mind, but were you much of a holiday goer? Um, no, I'd been to like a few places with my parents beforehand, but other than that, I'd never really traveled. How did the how did the family take the news about potentially you moving to China and working? Did like a lot of people do they think it was a bit 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 iffy, a bit dodgy? Everyone thought I was joking. But when I told them I got the job offer, they were they all thought I was joking. And when I told them that I was moving away for a year, everyone thought I was lying and joking. And then it wasn't until we booked the flight when everyone was like, Okay, he's actually serious, he's actually going. And by that point, it was too late for them to try to talk me out of it because I'd already booked the flight. And if they, ta- I think if they'd taken it serious at the time, I might have been swayed to not go. But again, it was kind of anger that no one believed that I could do it. So it kind of pushed me to want to do it. To be fair, that's, it's not a bad motivation trying to just almost prove it because it's such a big step. And I think a lot of people... Just the idea of hearing that someone, especially a family member or close friend, is going to be moving and working or just leaving the country for longer than two weeks. It is almost a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. Yeah. But, um, when you, you when you got the initial call from them, because I think my overall turnaround when I got the phone call may have been two to three months. And then I got the confirmation of the job probably the end of the July and then obviously we were flying out there start of September was it roughly the same time frame because you obviously had a, a second company reach out to you yeah but did um was it was it same about three four months yeah so the second company contacted me in about February and then I went back to this company in about April and then I think they kind of left it for about two months and then it was May kind of July when everything was getting done for where am I going to interview for so they kept they kept me in the loop somewhat but then yeah after the interview it was about two three months until we flew out in September it's quite a big turnaround I mean even for a, a standard getting a normal job say in like in the UK that's quite a not a bad turnaround how did you find the application process I know a lot of us were almost sure that we would have failed the application when we had the speaking tests and everything. But how, how did you find the application? I thought it, I, it was one of the strangest experiences that I had had at the time because it was not, I thought it was going to be a super formal job interview. And I remember getting, putting a suit on everything, sitting downstairs, getting ready to kind of like how we do a Zoom interview now. And mm. it was just a phone call. Hi, we're just going to ask you some questions about English and it was super, yeah, it just felt like it was a joke because the questions they were asking were so simple. Yeah. But yeah, even I thought I was, I had failed a couple of the questions and I didn't think I'd get the job, but they called me back and they were like, it's fine. It was the, the weirdest situation. I still remember doing mine just in the, um, well, in my, in my car when I was at work, I was sat in like 30 degree heat in like May and 
having to do this the weirdest interview which i thought was again just going to be talking about you know how 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 do you handle two children who are having a fight how do you handle your workload what's your priorities but no it was just basic kind of english you know what is this sentence what is the past tense here what yeah and it was um a single a single interview as well um if i remember correctly beyond the initial phone call so it was such an odd thing to think about when you consider that you're you're applying to effectively become a teacher yeah but um they didn't give us any information on the school either for where we would be applying or the city it was just you're going to teach in china and at the time i didn't think of the scale of china so i just thought oh we'll be in shanghai or somewhere popular yeah i mean i i was the same i think i the extent of what i was doing i asked them if i could potentially have an email address to a co-worker who i'll be working with so that i could maybe find some resources to have a look at and it was uh, it was lanny who was my co-teacher and i just she just sent me photos of the textbook we'd be working from and that was that was it that and there was difficult to find the school online it was difficult to find out where we were going i think even until we got the contract potentially we found out it might it was wenjo yeah so i remember that i asked them a bunch of questions like that i didn't i didn't think to ask about co-workers but i asked could i get pictures of the school the website and then i asked for co-work yeah i did ask for co-workers but i asked who i travel out with so they sent me yours and matt's facebook i don't know if you can remember but i messaged you on facebook asking you a bunch of questions and i think it was at that point i realized that everyone we were going with knew absolutely no information about where we were going and that that started to scare me but i think it was at that point where it was kind of too late to back out i remember the day that we all got we were asking the teach teflon china reps if we could potentially have some people's phone numbers because we all had to go to london to sort out our visas to go out there and they were like they were jumping through so many hoops like well we can't give you such and such as phone number until we get you know permission and eventually we got a, a group chat set up but again it was a yeah. case of we knew nothing i think even one of the teach tefl guys was in this group chat just to monitor it yeah and, you know we knew nothing about where we were going what we were doing or anything and then i think we were all kind of like ships ships in the night as we went to london to do our visas i remember i was in london and i got a message from joel i think that he was there as i was leaving and um yes yeah, so yeah, it, it was all so weird i never flew to london i mean i never went to london to do the visa they asked for me to send my passport to them and they would sort out my visa which was probably the most stressful experience out of all of it because i sent them my visa i think three weeks before we were supposed to fly and my visa came back the day of the flight and i remember just oh, waiting wow. around for the whole day thinking i'm going to miss my coach to get to the airport because i'm not going to get this visa today but it came like I think an hour before I had to leave to catch a coach to get to London. But those, I remember those group chats because everyone was super awkward in it and no one was messaging. Like if you saw how everyone was messaging in that group chat, it was all super formal. No one was trying to act out of place. I think everyone was trying to make it seem like they were a real teacher. 
everyone was using yeah, proper we, grammar. Yeah, it was we just... were all trying to. We waited until we knew each other, probably a few days, until we set up our own group chat. Yeah. I don't know why, but because we had a huge Tefl guy in it, and um, I think as soon as everyone kind of clocked everyone when we when we first saw each other in was it Terminal Three in the airport? Yeah, we kind of spoke each other out saying, "Yeah, we we all don't have a clue what we're doing. Um, everyone is kind of there for just different reasons, and." everyone has different backgrounds and then in the end we all realized we were such a chilled laid back group that yeah the second group chat was something else entirely yeah i remember just having super like being super anxious in that that first meeting because i've always got this thing about being perceived as weird and i don't want to be perceived as weird and i remember just for the first week trying not to talk not trying not to talk to anyone, but trying not to have a long conversation with anyone to not reveal myself. I know exactly what you mean. I, mean, I tend to make a couple of like jokes at times, probably just a little bit, catch people off guard. And um, I think I was holding back a lot of that. And I think a lot of people were as well, apart from maybe, I mean, Joel was always quite open from, from the get-go, but I think a lot of the group over, yeah. over the first month or so, everyone came out of the show because everyone realised we were all in the same boat. I think it's when we started drinking that got me and a lot of other people out of the shell. And it wasn't so much the drinks, it was the day after the drinks for me. So I remember the first night we went out and we went, we ended up in a KTV and I just got so absolutely drunk that I couldn't remember what was happening the next day. And bits of it were coming back to me because we went out and then the next day, we were supposed to have the tour of the school with Linda. So I just remember being not in the best position to do that. But everyone was so yeah. calm about like what happened the night before. No one was bringing it up. And I was like, okay. So, you know, it's only up from here if I've already been down to the lowest. So that got me out of my, um, out of my shell a lot. But yeah, that, that second group chat, I think we set it up after we all got WeChat because of the whole yeah. VPN issue and accessing WhatsApp in China, which probably was a good thing or else we would have been stuck in that group chat with the rep from Tefl. Yeah, I think that, I think there was a moment where obviously once after a few drinks, uh, you, you, I can't remember, someone goes, oh, where, where's the weed at? Where's the weed at? As a joke, as a joke, that's just prerequisite that. But um I think everyone was like, oh shit, if we, if he sees that, <laughs> it's going to be, you know, he's going to report it and yeah. get in trouble. But yeah. again, there was still that once everyone had full control, we knew what we were doing. The, what, in the, because the group that we went out with, there was us, um, what, I would say nine about, let's just say about nine of us, including Richard and Steph. And then there were about four or five more who ended up going to the other kind of school in Wenzhou. So we were, we were in the bit more of the laid back kind of rural side of things and they were a bit more in the city. But yeah, then we all, everyone kind of took control and we, we, we had everything sorted. Because I never understood how they decided to do that split and then how they decided who was going to what school. You know, like who was going primary, who was going middle. But I think no. when they split it like that, they got it exactly right. And I still to this day cannot understand why they did it that way. I, I, I couldn't possibly tell you. I know that, was it, I may forget their names. I know in the other school you had, obviously, you had Vic, Joe, Gregor, and 
I forget his name, but they were, they were, I had a music teacher, an art teacher, an English teacher and a sports teacher. Whereas the, I think their backgrounds were very much in those, but I still don't know how they possibly de- like designated us to the year groups that we were in. Obviously yeah. I was teaching grade two and you were teaching grade seven. Yeah. Grade seven. So you were in the senior school and I was in the primary, but again, not a clue how they came up with it. It must've just been a, a lucky dip or, Again, it could have been a case of they looked at our qualifications and our degrees that we all had, and maybe mine was less valuable than the business management being in films. They probably put me with the, uh, put me with the, the younger children. Yeah. Talking about this this first night in China, us going out in KTV. What was your initial reaction about arriving to China? Obviously, everyone thought they were going to get their kidneys harvested um, when we got off the plane, but quickly realized it was just very warm very tropical weather and that we were all out of our depths but what was your initial reaction to just being in China I think I was just I don't know it's hard to explain I felt like I had arrived if that makes sense and I remember just having enough money in my bank account to afford a return flight home so yeah, I had that nice. sense of security there. Like if I need to go back, if I'm hating it, I can go back. But if I'm here now, I might as well enjoy it and try and make the best of it. And I think for me, the moment that set it in was when we first went to the school. And I've still got a video of that moment of when we saw, you know, the school, the school had those red arches. Yeah. Because I remember looking on the website yeah. and seeing those arches and they looked like they were 3D animation. I was like, this is the fakest looking score. And then I remember going down, it was like this really long driveway, and then there was the primary school on the left and the middle school on the right. And we went into the primary school, and those three arches were there. And I was like, maybe they didn't tell me a lie. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe my kidneys are safe now. And I remember just at that point, I was like, okay, I'm arri- I've arrived. I'm here. The score's real it's time to get dug in and see what this life's about. And then from that point, moment on, I didn't need that security money in my bank account to um, get that flight. So I just felt, you know, you're here now, experience what you can experience. Obviously with that in mind, just seeing the school, it's, it's not a 3D animation, it is real. But, and we just mentioned how we were kind of like just put into certain grades. How did you find the introduction to the school and then the induction into your job, I suppose, for the next year? I don't think there was an introduction or an induction. It was kind of, let's walk around the school. And when we got to the, because we did the tour of the the primary school first, and that one seemed quite official, quite, you know, well put together. I think we went to get our name badges first. and. Yeah, that's something I remember quite, you know, strongly when we were in the, um, we were waiting to get our name badges and that whole Naga incident when they were talking about Obama. Do you remember that? Were you there for that? I can't quite. Do you know how like place it. in Chinese they do that um, when they're thinking about things and they say Naga oh, yeah, really yeah. quickly? Um, yeah. I think we were waiting in one of the, staff rooms waiting for our name tags to get printed and they were having this long discussion in Chinese which all of us thought just didn't understand and then one of them said Obama 
and a naga really quickly. And at that point, we didn't know that that was a thing. So it just sounded super strongly like the N-word. And we were all just like trying our hardest not to laugh. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it took us a couple of weeks to realise that that was just how they like stutter and pause while yeah. thinking, and um, it, it caught a few of us off guard of quite a few times. But the induction, the induction to the school was just let's walk around, see what's happening, and then I got so we did the primary school, and that seemed quite official. You all went into your offices and sat down with your people, and then I don't know what happened after that. If you had a conversation or something. Because they took me, Matt, Paddy, and Joel to the middle school during that part. And mm-hmm. it was Linda showing us around. And as you know, um, I don't know if the listeners, if you've spoken about Linda in the past, but Linda was our English interpreter who did not understand English. So we were asking Linda all these questions. And Tong, who I think is in the, was the primary school lead for foreigners, kind of stayed with you guys so you had someone who could speak English but we had Linda and Linda could not so we were walking around the um the school kind of asking whose classroom is this who's going to be in here and then the kids could obviously see a bunch of foreign people walking past the classroom so then it just turned into a massive uproar they were coming out of their classes giving us a round of applause it was kind of like being a celebrity that first day yeah. And then, um, yeah, so that was the introduction to the school, which was really cool because it just felt like you're a celebrity. But the induction to teaching was, I remember we were in the same kind of, we were walking around the school. One of my co-teachers came out of the classroom, pulled me into the classroom because we arrived a week late into China, didn't we? So the kids had waited a week to meet us all. So he was like, the students I'm really excited to meet you. Pulled me into the classroom and he was like, can you start? And I was like, what, what do you want me to do? So I remember saying hello and the kids just looked frightened because I don't think half of them at that point, this was their first ever English lesson. So after I said hello, they said hello back. How are you? And then they had that famous, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? And then I asked a question. And their faces just turned stoned. And then they just shouted back, can you speak Chinese? And then that was my induction to teaching. And this is it. And then I went to my office, met my, you know, my mentor. And she just slapped a bunch of books on my desk and said, you're going to be teacher from those. And then put her earphones in. And I was like, <laughs> okay, what do I do now? So I just yeah. like, kind of flaked it from there. That's almost borderline uh, the same situation that I had. I walked in, again, I was dealing with a lot younger kids, about six, seven years old. So they were a a bit more kind of like energetic, I suppose. And it was the same situation. Here's the book. We're teaching from this. I was like, right, okay. And I remember our first day before we were supposed to be teaching, we all sat in the, um, I forget the name of the cafe, but it was something, it was like a a number name. 19. 19, that's it. I've been trying to remember that. 19 Cafe. And we're all there hooking up to the internet, trying to put a terrible lesson plan together, not having a clue what we were doing. Yeah, because when we first moved in, we didn't have any Wi-Fi or anything, did we? So we didn't, have, we didn't know where to get food. No one took us around to show us anything. I think Linda took us to one shop to buy stuff and then took us back to where we were living. 
and then that was our introduction to where we were going to be staying. And that was our introduction to Wenjo. We had the 19 cafe, which we stumbled into. Linda took us to like this market store. And then we realized there was one actually right next door to 19 that she just didn't show us about. Yeah. And there were along that road that we were in by um, the New Century Peking School in Wenzhou, there were a couple of little marks, like a little bakery and there was a chicken shop. Um, kind of any, anything basic that we could have needed. But yeah, we didn't really get a clue too much about Wenzhou the, and the main city. Yeah, we were never. We just drove through it on the way from the airport to where we were staying, and that was it. I think. I think at one point, did Linda take us down to the Mix C Mall, or was that something that we kind of just we we all kind of just explored on our on our own accord? I think we explored that ourselves. I think a few of you guys went into town, and when you were taking a bus from where we were living into the city center, you went past Mix C. And then came back and told everyone about it. And then it was kind of, oh, let's all go see what it's about and see what's there. And then that's when we found out about the fact that they do have Starbucks in China and a Pizza Hut. Because all of that was like lost knowledge to us. We didn't know about anything. You kind of hear a lot about, I mean, when doing research before going out, it was a case of, yeah, you can't use Google. You can't do this. They don't have like all this kind of stuff out there. And you kind of think, right, okay, so mainland China itself it's completely separate to Hong Kong. And so you kind of naturally assume a lot of these Western businesses and food companies and all won't be there. So you might have a, like the Chinese knockoff, but no, it was, it was interesting. To, I remember there was a Toys R Us. There was a Under Armour shop. And yeah. Starbucks. It was, I think our first meal on our first night out before going to KTV was actually everyone stumbling into a McDonald's. And yeah. Experiencing the, uh, the Chinese McDonald's menu. I remember I didn't even get fries when i was there i got a rice bowl with chicken in it which yeah again was weird to me an alien to think you can get rice in a mcdonald's just um going back into it you mentioned that your your co-teacher just threw, threw the books onto your desk we're learning from this put our headphones in i know a lot of you guys in the secondary senior school were a bit more i suppose independent and you kind of had you had to like basically walk on your own two feet compared to a lot of us in the primary school because I feel feel like we were we had a lot more kind of eyes on us just because we had Tong down like on the same strip they were, they were yeah. all down in the same building but um how did you go about kind of developing working as a teacher how did you kind of grow as a teacher for over that first year was it just trial and error yeah it was purely trial and error it was what can I get the students to respond to in a positive way so I think for me, each lesson became more like a performance than it did teaching a lesson. And then if I could make, you know, if I could roll whatever they're learning from in the book into it, then that would be an added benefit. And then I had no kind of conversation with anyone else who was teaching. So at one point, I just gave up on the book and kind of thought of lesson plans myself. I remember, um, yeah, it was in the first two weeks, everyone was using like PowerPoint and PowerPoint was just like our saving grace. It was go to Google, find out what words I want to say, translate that, and then put the English word next to the translation 
and then that's how I'll teach them the word. And then I think for me, um, I started that in the first maybe month, and then I thought, well, then I'm kind of not needed here if that's all I'm going to do, because they can just look up the word and look up the translation. That's kind of, you know, makes me redundant in that whole presentation. So then that's when I decided to start having fun with lesson planning and kind of take my own spin on it. And then I did that famous lesson, which Paddy and Joel always, you know, bring up when they're trying to make fun of me, um, was the what's in my bag lesson, which was just me. Um, I think I I was going to plan a lesson and I just couldn't be bothered to. So it was a spur of the moment. What what can I teach? You know, I've got to teach something. And it was the day before and I was just looking around at like trying to get inspiration and I just saw my bag trying to go through the things that were in my bag to try to get more inspiration. I was like, if I just took some extra stuff in here, that's a really good vocab lesson because I had my umbrella, my keys, my wallet, you know, just everything in my bag. So I was like, you know what, chucking a wallet, chucking a charger, chucking some food and I can teach the students about, you know, the things I prepare for my day, what goes into my bag and kind of what they're used for and then teach them all that in English and then they can go in around play with my bag pull something out and go oh this is my wallet it has my cash and then there's a simple sentence structure with simple vocabulary which they can easily learn and identify with the things that they're seeing so then they had a lot more fun engaging with me on that level than just seeing me stand at the front of the classroom shouting words and getting them to shout back. So that's kind of how I took the teaching. I never had any guidance from anyone else. It was kind of, like you said, trial and error, see what works. Did you ever feel like, because I know a lot of us who are in the primary school, we do kind of class ourselves as almost like glorified babysitters. Our, our classes were always the ones that would be kind of like cancelled first if there was a school event. We would always have our lesson plans interrupted if the school had some marketing they wanted to do and we had a video team walk in, which happened to me a few times. How did you kind of perceive yourself in the in kind of within the school environment? Did you find yourself thinking I am a teacher or that you are just here as almost a piece to justify the parents paying for this private education? A bit of both, really. I think. In the first term, I took myself super serious as a teacher. You know, I wanted to be respected by the other teachers and by the students. And then in the second semester, it was, you know, we're just here to put on a performance and make the kids laugh. And if they can speak English at the end of the day, then that's a bonus. We're just here for fun. And then towards the second part of the second semester, I kind of, thought you know it's what you make it if you want to be seen as a teacher act like a teacher if you want to have fun then have fun so you know some weeks I I tried to be a teacher and then some weeks I would just turn up to a lesson with nothing planned and see how it goes because I knew there would not be any you know comeback on if I didn't prepare anything. Do you think there was was there a a long time because you were out in China for you know, two and a half years before COVID hit, you were in Wenzhou for two of those years. Did you picture yourself having a long-term plan as a teacher or is it kind of the standard answer of when it came time to the contract renewal, I'll just do one more year? 
So the first year in China, when I first went out there, it was we're going to do it for a year and then we're going to go home because we probably won't like it. And then I finished the first year and I just remember thinking, I can't go home now. I'm just having too much fun. You know, this is this is the way I want to live. So I did that year. And then the second year wasn't as fun as the first year. There was a lot of drama going on. I won't go into too much detail on that, but there was a lot of drama going on. And I just wanted to get out of that kind of environment. So then I moved to Beijing. And my plan for Beijing was to do two years in Beijing and then come back to the UK and stop teaching because my ambition wasn't to be a teacher. I wanted to do something more in line with my degree. So that that was my plan. And then COVID cut everything short. So I just had to do kind of what was my two-year plan in six months because I just couldn't get back to the country. What was the um, what was the signing factor for such a big city like Beijing as opposed to moving to one of the other kind of lesser known like um, districts of China? I don't think there was a deciding factor. I think I was just applying for jobs with a certain salary and it was the first one that would say yes to me that looked like an all right environment that would do for me. So Beijing just happened to be the first ones to give me a contract. When I was looking, I was doing something similar before I decided to leave. And it was just, you try and find something with a nice pay bracket within a nice school and potentially a nice area to just enjoy the time in. Yeah. I think from living in Wenzhou, it showed me that the area didn't really matter. It's more about the people that, you know, you're with. So when I was going into Beijing, um, before I signed a contract, I flew out to the school and I saw kind of the living area for teachers and it looked somewhat similar to um, where we were living in Wenzhou. So I was fine with it at that point. We were quite fortunate with the living conditions in, in Wenzhou. We, I think from what I've heard, one of the students' parents actually owned the building and rented out the rooms to the, to the school. And I, we were all quite lucky to have our own one bed apartment and that we didn't have to pay anything for it was yeah extremely cushy i i love that apartment i think i think living in that apartment changed my view on kind of how i wanted to live my life because i hate like when i came home um and i was living with my parents again i hated it and then i moved out and started living with other people and I just hated it. And all I kind of wanted was just my own space to, you know, just somewhere to call my own where it was just chill and had good vibes. So I was looking into buying a house and I just felt like it was too large. I don't need that much space. So now I just live in a one bed apartment again. And I'll probably just buy a place like this in a couple of months. I agree. The I changed almost the way it was quite minimalist as well. I think a lot of people, because no one really knew they'd be staying there for a year or two years. I think only yeah. a few people tried to make the apartment feel quite quite homely, but everyone else was fairly minimalist in what they added to the apartment. It was more of a nice of necessity and need over just wants and desires. Yeah, it was my thing. My thinking was, um, this isn't permanent, so I don't need to buy anything that's not already here. That. I don't need to live with like I think Steph bought a Christmas tree yeah. and it was a plastic one as well 
And I was just like, well, that's going to last for like 20 years. <laughs> you don't need to go that far <laughs> in the future. Either get a fake, a real one that you can throw away at the end or just put a picture on the TV at Christmas and that will do. Yeah, Steph was probably the the, the bougiest when it came to pimping out her, her apartment. I mean, Joel went another way of getting a giant, you know, white furry rug. But yeah. I think that was the classic misunderstanding of Taobao where we didn't understand the the wording to know what size it was. And I think the one that Joel thought he bought was smaller than it actually was. A Taobao is a thing, like it's a whole different discussion, is it? Isn't it? Because the amount of things that were on there and how cheap they were. Like I never filled my apartment with um anything big, but I got like a really big buying shoe problem when I was living in China. Like every month I could spend over a hundred pounds on shoes because I would just go on Tabo and start scrolling through kind of what's available. Yeah, you were you were quite the uh, the sneakerheads. I mean, you you. I remember once, weren't you looking for the Rock was releasing his Under Armour collaboration shoe, and you were debating about waiting in line at Under Armour. Yeah, there was that. There were, um, I think, Kanye released those Yeezy Red Octobers, which were like fifteen thousand pounds. And I remember us like thinking in China we're super rich, we'll be able to afford anything. So I was thinking yeah. I'd be able to get those and. I was just like kidding myself. But then those, um, did you see those, the Nike um, versions of the Back to the Future shoes with the automatic laces? Yes. They were about 600 pounds. And I was so close to buying them a couple of times on Taobao just because we used to have to convert everything from, um, yet, what is it? RMB to pounds. Mm. And I did the conversion wrong once, and I thought they were like two hundred pounds. So I thought I was getting a steal, and then um, I'd missed a couple of numbers and checked again, and they were like almost triple the price. So you didn't buy them? I'm no, guessing. I didn't. Like looking back now, I kind of regret not buying them, um, just because of you know we were saving so much money back then compared to here because we didn't have to pay for our apartments, and the cost of living out there was almost nothing to the point where I think in the first semester of the first year, I don't think I cooked once. I think I was just eating out every day. 19 made a fortune out of a start. Yeah, we were we were killing it, working our way through their menu throughout that first year. Yeah, like I couldn't read Chinese, but I could read their menu back to front. We just <laughs> were there so often. Yeah, I think when everyone learned where their, where their favourites were, like the, the entire like fried chicken or once you realize they had normal pizzas yeah yeah we were we were sorted i remember when we got those bikes as well yeah when... that was probably the um the 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 first massive purchase i think we all did i think we did that about maybe month two i think we all bought them around october when we got the pay yeah because joel and banda got theirs first and then well, i think it was you and broken. i yeah they got didn't they get a second hand one and it was horrible yeah and then they went they found a shop near the school and found out that to get this bike it was 300 pounds and to charge it was like 10p a day and you didn't need insurance so we could get around the city again 
and do everything independently for 300 pounds for the year. Mm. I think after that we were sold. And I remember when we first got those bikes, we were all super, let's put our helmets on, let's be sensible, stop at every red light. And I think after about three weeks, I don't even think it was that. It was, okay, we don't need to wear the helmets, we're fine. What, the Chinese people aren't stopping at red lights. Let's go through them as well then. And then racing through cars, just trying to get everywhere as fast as possible. Yeah, we did become proper, you know, native riders just weaving in and out of traffic be, and you know not not encouraging people to ride without a helmet but it did become a case of who could last the longest before having an accident and yeah and i know i had one mainly because the build quality wasn't fantastic and my brakes ran out and i think i am um, i slid off into a crossroads all right i remember yeah that that that, that wasn't great but um from that day on i did wear my helmet all the time but yeah yeah i had a few minor incidents like um but all mine were caused by me so i think i hit two cars in a taxi but there were never anything like where i came off my bike it was kind of I, the two cars i brushed into them but the taxi i was going the wrong way down the road and mm. it was the person the passenger of the taxi opened the door obviously they looked behind them to make sure nothing was coming didn't expect anyone to come from the front so they opened the door and my bike closed it and then I almost fell off, but I managed to stabilize myself. But I think after that, my lesson then wasn't put on your helmet and drive on the right side of the road. It was look out for taxis, which... <laughs> taxis were worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, um, the, the bikes were a, a very much a, a double-ended sword. It was a case of... We could do whatever we want, but we all knew that we could almost get away with everything because there were so many times when you'd hit something and there was never a case of having to worry about insurance, as you mentioned, that we never had. Yeah. But there were so many times where not where we didn't we weren't involved, but we saw other like Chinese people getting accidents. And it's just a case of they probably yell at each other, then they just they got on their bikes or in their car and they buggered off. Yeah. And I remember we yeah, we'd get away with anything with one line which was just saying in Chinese, sorry, I don't speak Chinese. Yeah. I remember getting stopped by the police for the bikes and them asking me for, you know, to show papers or a license or something. And I just said, I don't speak Chinese. And the guy's face just dropped, like, I've not got the energy for this, and just said, be on my way and stop the next Chinese person that went past. Yeah, that was always a fun bit. I remember when, because I did, no one realised it, but the bikes had two seats on them. But they weren't allowed to have two people on them. They were solely for one person. And I got stopped a few times when giving like like one of my co-workers a lift or like one of you guys. We were just going back to the before to the thing, just getting pulled over. And they're like, you, you, know, you know, you can't do this. One person, one. I was like, that was it. Ting dong, ting dong. Yeah. And then you, you, well, I try not to play the card too much, but yeah, that was my uh, saving grace, like. The moment I thought I'm in trouble here, just ting badong, ting badong would save the day. Yeah, so too many times, and then it just became screaming it out when we've had one too many drinks. Yeah, or I love you to taxi drivers. That came out oh, too yeah. many times when we had too many drinks. Yeah, that came out one too often. We did become the um, typical yob tourists, then just getting too drunk in the back of a taxi. Yeah. 
with um with, with your bike as well we also mentioned it gives you that unlimited freedom within the um the range of the elect- electric charger it gives you you were always trying to make the most of the weekends and enjoying it you mentioned obviously your weekend kind of started you know as soon as our meeting finished on a friday um and you've you said before we started recording that you you some you do a bit of um prep when it comes to exploring but when it came to your weekends in china how did you plan which way to go, what to explore, and just what to do? How did you plan your weekends? Um, well, it depends. If we had plans within the group, then I might stick with the group. But if there were no plans and I didn't want to you know, stay in my apartment just barely watching YouTube on a horrible VPN, um, I would just open up a map. Um, kind of zoom in to see where there's like a water feature or something that might be interesting and seeing if my bike would have range to get there and if not then praying that there was a charging point there so I would just yeah try to explore as much as possible and if I couldn't do it in this city it was super cheap to get a train ticket and go somewhere for the weekend so I never wanted to stop when I was in China. I always wanted to just keep getting up and moving. And I think once we had those bikes, it was just get on it and go and see where you end up. With the with the trains, how how far did you go? I know you went to you you visited Shanghai and Chengdu a few times. Were there any other places that you went around in China for the long weeks or weekends? Um, Hangzhou. I went to Hangzhou, which was quite in you know, between um, Shanghai and Wenzhou. And when I was living in Beijing, we had an extra long weekend and I went to Inner Mongolia, which was really different. I went to see a desert, which was on my bucket list. So, And with, with all these places darting around China, making the most of it, exploring whatever you can, obviously we were quite rural. We were not really at all in a kind of a Western touristy place of um, Wenzhou. We were, I think, what was it four hours by train from Shanghai? Yeah. Um, what was your experience like with culture shock as you were kind of darting around, especially when you went out, say, by yourself for a ride on the bike? I think once we, after like a month or two, yeah, maybe after two months, I felt like I was, you know, not Chinese, but I was used to this lifestyle. So the culture shock for me mostly was the food within the first two months. After that, it was just you knew what you were getting, go to a new place. Everyone's going to look at you weird. Someone's going to be brave enough and ask for a picture. And then you'd be left alone after that. So it was just, yeah, kind of just travel about and see what was happening. Were there any customs that you kind of enjoyed and picked up along the way? Obviously, we we took a couple of day trips and Linda explained what she could. But was there anything that almost became a regular occurrence for you or something that you enjoyed seeing while you're out in China that was just the norm for them? Yeah, so we had, where we were living, straight across from us in our apartments was those mountains, weren't there? Mm. So um, we'd either walk up the mountain every other weekend or quite often, or we would drive to Chashan and drive up that mountain and see what was up there. So I think, yeah, just kind of where they lived for me was the most amazing part and to them it's just you know we live here it's used to us but for me like waking up in the morning and seeing a mountain outside my window that you can then just go up and climb up and then see where you're living from like a bird's eye view 
that for me was probably the most amazing part. I'd probably say the most amazing part on my end. I remember there was one kind of, I wouldn't say abandoned temple, but a temple that was having serious renovations up in the hills. And as soon as we realized how far the bike could get us up the hill before it struggled, and then how far we could walk it, a lot of these massive mountains opened up incredible views, I'd say. And then really kind of, for me, that was the moment I kind of realized where I was having that kind of bird's eye view of, almost something that looked photoshopped in real life it was um quite crazy for me yeah because i remember we had the temple that was right next to where we lived and we could just walk you know across the street and get to that and that was incredible but that abandoned temple i remember i think it was paddy went up there and said we can drive up here i've made it before so someone took us up there and yeah it was just incredible and yeah especially the view and the artwork that they had there as well which we would never would have seen yeah and the wood carvings it's it's that whole you know that the culture of china is almost on every every street um which is nothing like what you'd find in england really yeah and even like the small things i'd say i'd miss i remember coming back here and the first thing that I realized, and it was like a culture shock coming back home, was just how dirty and littered the streets are. Because in China, they had those people walking around the streets, didn't they? Just like sweeping up leaves and any old rubbish. And then you go for a walk here or in any city or, you know, any town, you'll find crisp packets from like a decade ago. That is probably the, the one thing. It, it was an interesting mix, though, because the um, it was quite polluted. Like the, the skies were always yeah. smoggy in like peak summer, but the streets were immaculately clean to the point they looked like they were just made out of marble, like they were polishing the hell out of those floors. I remember a big thing for us lot when we first moved there were the trees and how the bottom half of the tree from like chest height down, do you remember they were all painted white? Yeah. And I don't think we ever got an answer as to why that was. There were always those odd, like, mysteries that we all had. Like, we always noticed there was taxi drivers would have their really long pinky nail. Yeah. Which we just didn't have a clue about. I mean, it, you know, there were certain things, like, why are so many, like, people carrying umbrellas in the in the sun? But, and obviously that's, like, a whole class thing. The nail thing is a whole another bit about class. Yeah. But yeah, paint, painted trees and... I think the one thing that blew my mind was when we woke up one morning, I think maybe six in the morning to fireworks and chimes and bells and gongs and everything going off. And we looked out our windows and there's like a parade going down the street. And we were like, this is the weirdest thing. There's there's a parade. And then we only realized that when it happened four or five more times, that was them, I think, doing a funeral march. Like a family member died who was quite affluent and well-known. And they were doing a parade down the street. Yeah. I remember that. That shocked me. So like, it was annoying because it woke us up in the morning. And then it was kind of sweet because here, like, death is kind of morbid and no one wants to have that conversation about it. But there, it did seem like it was more of a, celebra- a celebration of life than it was a yeah. sad there. There was a lot of those moments where we would just you we kind of realized just how different certain interpretations were when it came to obviously being in china versus back home even down to like the color red how that is such a good luck color 
in China, and we were always handed, you know, red envelopes full of cash from certain days as a yeah. as a thank you and a gift. But obviously, red over here is usually a negative color when it comes to seeing something. Yeah, and green so, over there was bad, wasn't it? Like, um, I remember green being told that green was the color of, you know, you've been cheated on or a divorce or something bad has happened. Yeah, yeah. which is even quite a positive and fresh color for for us. Yeah, even like the smallest things, like you know how like we call someone over and we do it like palm face up, and then you flick your fingers inwards. They do it yeah. palm face down and do it that way. And I remember students trying to call me over doing that, and I'm thinking that's a weird way to wave goodbye. Yeah, and when they were doing the putting their index finger and thumb together, not having a clue what we were doing or what they were doing, then I think it took about eight months for us to realize when you look at it, it's supposed to look like a heart. It's supposed yeah. To mean, like, yeah, lot, lots of little things. I mean, even I think I, how I learned to count to 10 using one hand and using all the your fingers held out in different ways. and Yeah. Yeah. But that's another thing as well. Obviously, none of us speak, spoke Mandarin. None of us at all spoke Cantonese. And we did try and a few people took up lessons and we did ask Linda for help and that just turned into a song. Yeah. How was your grasp of learning Mandarin and how did that go throughout your time in China? Um, so when I first moved out there, I knew how to say hello. And I'd say that that was about it. I could ask how much is this, but if they gave me a number, I wouldn't be able to understand it. So, um, yeah, I was one of the people who wanted to take lessons when we got there. So I remember the first thing that, helped me was I met some foreign people in a bar and they were like oh here's like a big group chat for Wenjo and then the, the, I think the only message that I sent in that group chat before I left was can someone give me a contact for a Chinese teacher and then um I got the contact I asked the group our own separate group chat does anyone want to come and it was me Paddy and Matt who took up the lessons and for me you know, I've tried to learn languages and I've always been one of those people that said, oh, I'd love to learn a language, but then put no effort into it. So for me, being in an opportunity where if I learn the language, my life gets easier. It was kind of, you know, a win-win. I'll be learning something and my life gets easier. So you might as well. So yeah, like for me, learning the language was definitely helpful. And I remember, you know, the shop that we used to go to, um, that was next to 19. I knew then when my Chinese was, was getting to a decent level, when um, we used to walk into that shop and he always used to say something like Huiyin Guanling. And I remember never knowing what that said. I just thought it was like, you know, a sound to let them know that someone's entered the shop. And it was the day that I walked in there. I understood what that said. And then I had a conversation with the woman behind the counter and I left that I knew that, you know, I could probably speak Chinese now. So then I had a goal in mind, which was to do a HSK. Mm. So I passed HSK two um, while I was in China and I passed HSK three after I left. So I think that was in 2020. How is your how is your Chinese now? Um. Yeah, it's lacking, I'd say. So when I first moved back to the UK, and I've not told many people this story, um, 
I was applying for jobs and I got a job interview at Huawei. And on the job advert, it said um, English and good Chinese, which I took that it meant you need to be fluent in English and, you know, decent enough at Chinese. What the what they actually meant was you need to be fluent in Chinese and okay in English. That's just a classic example of, um, well, I suppose Chinglish, isn't it? Is what they, yeah. they would call it. Yeah, absolutely buggered because they didn't translate it in a right way. Yeah, but, you know, it was, I look back at it now and I laugh. Yeah, because I was going through a recruiter and the recruiter had asked me at that, you know, I did the phone interview with the recruiter. I didn't do it with the Huawei people. And it was all in English. And they were like, is your Chinese good? And I was like, you know, yeah, like I'm HSK3. So I could probably, you know, do okay at a university level. Well, probably for a good thing now that Huawei isn't really a thing in in England anymore. You know, (laughs) silver lining. Yeah, I guess you can look at it that way. I mean, even from, from that as well, would you say your time in China... Um, obviously shorter than anticipated was it um, has it taught you many life lessons then obviously you've learned a language you've learned that whole sense of independence but has it taught you anything that you've brought home with you and that you've kind of adapted into your normal life without maybe not without even knowing Um, I think so when I moved to China I just turned 22 so I was coming out of that you know, I had a year after uni where I was just living with my parents and it was kind of like regressing back into how I was back in high school. And then I was thrown into the deep end mm. in China, um, not knowing how to deal with anything. And I think for me, that experience of just not knowing anything that's happening and kind of adjusting to how life is became the norm for me. And like, you know, every experience everything I was doing was just something totally new and I think for some people it'd be quite frightening to live that way but for me it was more about every day was a new challenge and to me that's so much more exciting than knowing what's gonna happen next so yeah yeah it's kind of hard to explain like um for me the worst thing to hear and I hate it when my parents say to me, it's like, when are you going to settle down? Because to me, that's just like, okay, your adventure's over now. You're going to be stuck in this one place. And I kind of, I would say I matured in China. So my maturation was more about not settling down and just keep looking for the next thing to do. Do you think you'll, do you think you'll ever work abroad again? Or do you think um, it might just happen naturally? I'd like to. I think when I'm next looking for a role, um, I'll do like an even split of abroad and home. But I think if I'm looking to teach, I mean, if I'm looking to go abroad again, I don't want to do it the same way we did it last time as a teacher. I'd like to do more with what I'm, you know, with the work that I'm doing now. So I think more realistically, yeah. I'd be looking for somewhere in Europe or the Americas, but ideally Europe. For those potentially debating about taking that year out, obviously none of us really planned on being teachers. Um, I think the allure of the travel was probably just something and the teaching was an easy way to go about it instead of worrying about what do we do day three, four, five. 
But what would uh, what bit of advice would you offer someone who's kind of unsure about going traveling and working abroad? I think my advice would just be to go and do it. Like you can hear people tell you their experience, whether it's good or bad, yours is going to be totally different. And especially for me, I went when I was, you know, fresh out of uni. I didn't know much about the world and I just went out there with open eyes and looking to experience things so if you're the type of person who can just say yes and you know if there's things that you don't want to do don't do them but if you've got the opportunity to do it and you're interested in it in it you might as well do it type of thing so i've got a cousin who is um i think not this month, next month, they're going to Korea to do the same thing. And this is after I brought them to China to come visit me when I was living out there when they were about 19. Um, yeah, I think anyone, anyone can do it. You don't have to be special to do it. And it's more of what you make it. Mm. Can you cut that and make it sound and small? You... I I could put something together, but I think I think that was, I think that was fine. I mean, a lot of people say the same. It's either down to a case of you don't know what you're doing, but everyone kind of plays it by ear, which I think a lot of our group did. We we didn't really have a clue. We weren't really shown much. We weren't told much about the job. And as soon as we got the bike, everyone just kind of went in a direction. They just pointed yeah. their bike and went. And people took on hobbies. People took on interests. You obviously took on a big um, shoe addiction shopping habit obviously banda had his music people went to go explore people learn some people kind of dived into it and as we know a few people are still in china some of which have started families so there are so many different things that have come out from us lot being in china from that first year yeah that it's it's nothing that anyone could have anticipated i mean the, um obviously two members of the group joe and richard they they, they married um, to um, and have kids out there now and it's again you just didn't think it all these years later that some people would still be out there you say I was just gonna you, you mentioned that you know saying yes to a lot of things having that kind of open-mindedness to explore and you know saying yes is there anything that you kind of regret not doing or do you feel like you got any unfinished business out in out in China since your time there was cut short because of covid yeah, at times. There was a few people that I was speaking to that, um, you know, if I went back to China, I'd probably meet up with them and see them more. Uh, mm. And there were places that I really wanted to see that I just put on, you know, kind of the back burner. I'll see them next time. You know, when I come back to China, I'll see them. Wait, no, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, I, I I know exactly what you mean. And it was more COVID, so it was um, if I wanted to go somewhere, I'd go, but I'd have places that I'd want to see, then somewhere else would come up, and I'd think I'm still here for like another year. I'll go another time, but because of COVID, all that was cut short, and I couldn't see everywhere that I wanted to see. In terms of oh, please, please go. feeling like being at home, I know what you mean. Like um after a certain amount of time, I used to go, I used to want to go to Hangzhou all the time to 
see things but it was like okay I've been once it's kind of like going to Liverpool I've been there one time I don't need to go there again I've kind of done it but looking back now there were things that I wanted to do in Hangzhou where I thought I'd have more time and naturally go back but now that I'm not there I've lost that chance to do it I think that's why a lot of the like the lot of the people that I've spoken to that have come back after their time away just always have it in the back of their head about going away again. There's all I think once you've had that bite of kind of the the expat lifestyle, it never truly kind of goes away. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, you're going to be stuck with that forever. Like, because there's so much more yeah things to do. There's like that famous saying like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And it's that not knowing and knowing that you could go out there and go see it. But there's just, yeah, too many things come in the way, like time and money. But if you're living out there and expat out there, that's no longer, you know, a threat or a worry because you can just take a weekend and go do it. Whereas we've got the joy of just going to London or Manchester for a weekend, but um, yeah. I think um, I think I think that's a, a, a great point to, to end on. We've talked a lot about obviously going out there, the kind of semi-professionalism that I think a lot of people find in certain schools, especially what we found in, in Wenzhou, and then obviously when it came to the culture and learning, you, you did quite a lot in the short span of time that you were there, and um, it, it's a shame that for a lot of people, a lot of journeys were cut short because of covid but, yeah but it's kind of you I know suppose... one door closes another one opens so i'm just waiting now for the next opportunity yeah and to be fair that i mean as we kind of find all it could it, that next opportunity could come from anywhere even just a random person giving you a call that you think might want your kidneys yeah i'm so happy i've got those so Aaron, but before letting you go and enjoying the the rest of your day, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show, and um, I'm I'm getting that monopoly down of the the Wenzhou lot from year one. So thank you for your time. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Greg. No, it's been great catching up. But before I before I let you go, I have my little quick fire questions that I like to ask everyone, and shouldn't take too long. Uh, that's the aim of them. But was there an item that you forgot to take when you got to China that you had to? go shopping for no i think i was well prepared as you know a speaker a speaker is definitely something i had to buy yeah i think everyone kind of fell in love with having that music which leads me on to um my next question is there a song that kind of takes you back to wenjo or that you played whilst you were out there that came almost the song on every playlist yeah we had a couple like um when we were drinking, it would be Wonderwall uh, just before we were going out. And then I think in terms of my time in China, when I look back at it, um, there was that Chinese song that I found one day just in a chicken shop about a woman learning to speak cat, Shui Miao Jiao. I think every time I put that on, oh, yeah. just for fun, um it it always brings me back to a slot in ktv trying to sing it that's a very different one i'll try and find that to stick on the old spotify playlist um obviously you you picked up a fair bit of chinese i think that goes without saying is there a favorite phrase that 
you kind of you picked up and learned? Favorite phrase. Yeah, I know a lot of people kind of go straight to Ting Dong. I think Ting Dong is up there, but I don't know if that was my favorite phrase. Um, I think it's one. Yeah, it's kind of hard to explain. I just like the way it sounded more than anything. Um, it's Chabudwa, which is I think I'm, I might be wrong. It's most likely that I am wrong. It's something about being around about something like it's close to having something like um, you'd say, can I have seventeen apples? Chabudwa. It just it just sounded nice coming off. But the yeah, top. it sounds nice. Yeah. What? Actually, can I change the answer? Can I change it? Go change it, go on then. Okay. Yeah, I think my favorite phrase probably would be Duo Xiao Qian because it didn't matter where you were. So how much is it? Yeah. It doesn't matter where you were. You could um, say that to a shop assistant. You could say it to someone in a restaurant. You could say it to a taxi driver. And they would always turn around and say, your Chinese is so good. And it, it would just hit you with that euphoria of like, oh, thank you. And then you just say, xie, xie, which is thank you. And their face would light up and your face would light up. And then you'd remember, let's not let the conversation go any further than that. Otherwise, I'm going to be uh, revealed. <laughs> yeah. And for, for me, whenever I said it, it was a case of um, I could say it and ask how much it was. But I wouldn't have a clue on what the answer would be. So I think when they saw me staring back after they gave me the price, they'd immediately put out their phone or the nearby calculator and just type it out for me because I got found out so quick. <laughs> yeah, once I had, um, I think, numbers up to 100. And after 100, it gets simpler. Um, yeah, once I got to that point and they could say a number, I could get it quickly. I felt like I was a Chinese person. And I could just get through life like that. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you got through life. I unfortunately did not. I could count to 10. But so, Aaron, final question. Obviously, China, big step. Um, always like to know what country is still on your bucket list that you want to go see? So on my list, um, it's not a country. It's the Seven Wonders. So having been to China, okay. um, I've done the Great Wall. And as we mentioned before the podcast, Paddy's in Egypt, so I've got a chance to do the pyramids. So if I've, you know, almost done two off my list, I might as well complete the seven and go for the seven wonders. Well, that's an ambitious task, and I suppose it'll take you to a few countries as well. But okay. yeah, not a bad goal to have, I'd say. Yeah, well, that's the hope that it's possible, but we'll so see. This has been, again... We'll see. There's still time. There is always time and there's always opportunities as well. Again, I'd just like to say, Aaron, th thank you again for, for coming on the show and happy travels for the Seven Wonders. Yep. And to you, Greg, whether that's here or in the country. Right, take care. Thank you for joining us today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the Tales from Travellers podcast to stay up to date on past and future episodes. I'm always looking to share new stories from expats and repats from all over the world. So please reach out if you'd like to share your story. You never know, your story could be the one that helps someone make that life-changing choice. 
You can find us on Instagram at Tales from Travellers. I'd love to hear your story, and more importantly, I'd love to share it with the world. I look forward to hearing from you, but thanks again for joining me, and until next time, happy travels.